If you would this morning turn to the book of Mark as we journey through this gospel. We're looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. I want to mention before we get started after the service, I do have a little pamphlet that I've written on this particular text in the past. I think I handed it out in December 2018, but many of you weren't here then. If you'd like a copy of this commentary on this passage, you're certainly free to have one. But as we come to this particular section in the book of Mark, we recognize that this is perhaps the only one in the entire gospel that does not really focus on Jesus as the main character. Instead, it focuses on John the Baptist and Herod Antipas, known here by Mark as King Herod. Several modern commentaries call this passage a digression from the main storyline. And you wonder, why is it here in this form? Well, this section reminds us, first of all, there is nothing new under the sun when it comes to the depravity of man. It's a terrible story of cruelty, immorality, and a skewed sense of justice. And these things we know now prevail in our peaceful America, and they also prevail in the war-torn Middle East and all around the world. You see, there's nothing new in the depravity of man, and it will not stop until the great day of judgment. So here is a story of intrigue and depravity, wealth and influence, but in the end, God still maintains his gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he bowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. We consider this reading of God's word kind of terrible in many ways yet still part of the history of God's people in this bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us wisdom and understanding from this passage. Any application you, Spirit, would have us learn, apply it to us, to ears that hear it and hearts that understand it. I pray, Lord, 
that in my familiarity with this passage, you will help me not to speculate. You will also help me to give the words you would have me give consistent with your scripture or else never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. You might recognize this particular individual in modern history, today's present-day history. It seemed to begin with a large Nike collection. Along with Chicago Bulls and especially Michael Jordan paraphernalia and collectibles and posters during his school days in Bern, Switzerland. Over the years, the opulence that this man has collected have included expensive watches, luxury cars, and every type of wealth imaginable. In his 12-year reign, Kim Jong-un has lived in extreme wealth while his people starve. While his advisors and his family serve for fear of their lives that if they say or do the wrong things, they will be executed or secretly poisoned. And the world watches as a ruthless dictator rules with the power of fear over his people. You look at that and you say, how can God let this continue? Or you can say, how can we as a world let such a ruler rule in terrible ways over his own people? And yet kings and other titles for rulers before Herod and since have maintained this reputation of decadence. In every generation since the fall of man, there have been cruel and ruthless leaders who have done these very things and maintained this reputation of cruelty, decadence, and immorality as part and parcel of the wickedness of man's heart. We come to this passage to see, on the one hand, God's power. On the other hand, the decadence and a type of morality of mankind. First of all, the power of God, even in the midst of a depraved and sinful world. Here is the power, first of all, the power of the divine Son of God. Lest we forget the context, Mark is giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we have come to this chapter, it's been all about the early ministry, teaching, and powerful miracles of Jesus, particularly in Galilee. And so verse 14, it says, King Herod heard of it. The it here is the miraculous powers and teaching of Jesus. It says his name has been become known. And so this is power in the divine Son of God. So, here is what takes place as a result of this divine power. And this, again, is consistent with the entire book of Mark up to this point. The people see the miraculous powers, they see his wonderful teaching, and they begin to speculate. It caused speculation among these people. They were asking these questions. Of course, we know some of them were asking, was he possessed by demons, or how could it be we, we know where his family is and who they are, we don't know how he got these powers. But here are the questions they ask in this portion of Mark's text. Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet like one of the prophets of old? In other words, the speculation is tied in one sense 
to some of the eschatological hopes and dreams of the people of Israel. Elijah, of course, was the one who was to come before the end. And some of the other prophets preaching about the last day and so forth, and they thought these miraculous powers we're seeing are such that maybe he is a reincarnation or a resurrected prophet from of old. But what about the rulers of the day? Here is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, of course, is the ruler in Galilee. He is a tetrarch, if you want to know the technical term for his title. He never really was king. In fact, the term for king, he was actually deposed for his desire to have that title placed upon him. He wanted more than anything else to be called king, and so Mark gives him this title because that's how he wanted to be referred, but he was actually a tetrarch, that is, a ruler of one-fourth of the area by which his father, Herod the Great, had ruled. And it says here, the divine power of Jesus even had an impact on somebody as depraved and decadent as Herod Antipas, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But the other part of God's power here is seen through the ministry of John the Baptist. Let's go back in history, as Mark does, to describe what took place for these questions to be asked by Herod Antipas. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, for it was here. In other words, here's the story. Here's the background to what is taking place to the words from 14 through 16. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. The power of God was seen in John in the prophet, in a different way. In fact, John 10, 41 tells us that John never, he never performed a sign. He wasn't one who was a miracle worker. He wasn't the prophet Elijah in that sense, coming with amazing and powerful miracles, calling fire down from heaven, or praying that rain would stop or start on God's notice, or raising people from the dead, or doing amazing and powerful miracles. John was a proclaimer. He was preparing the way for the Lord by God's word and promises and showing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. In this sense, the prophet John has power from God in the boldness of his office. And here's the boldness of his office. Here is Herod with a certain reputation and certain powers and certain abilities to even take the lives of those under him. And John has no qualms about calling him out in his immorality. This boldness of his office, office contains the conviction of his message. Here is what he said. This is just one thing. I'm sure it was more than one sentence that John said in public. He says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In other words, here's Herodias. Herodias was married, first of all, to Philip. Now, it's a little uh, 
confusing because actually Herod Antipas has two brothers named Philip. Uh, some people think it was Philip, one of the other tetrarchs. I tend to fall in this category. Others think it was another Philip by another wife that his father, King Herod the Great, had. We don't know which Philip it was. But anyway, Herodias was married to this Philip. And Herodias, against all Jewish law or religion, filed for divorce in Rome from her husband Philip. Meanwhile, Herod Antipas, the Herod here, had a wife from the neighboring kingdom of Nabatea, and he put that wife away so that he could marry Herodias, his sister-in-law while his brother was still living. Now, why is that so horrible? Well, it's because, for one thing, it's wrong to divorce and remarry in those ways. We know that. It's also wrong to go out and do this, particularly in ways that are against Scripture itself. In Leviticus, both chapters 18 and 20 remind us that to take your uncle's wife is wrong. And so that is why John is saying it is not lawful for you to do this. Lawful according to God's law. Now, the Romans let him do this. The laws of the day let him do this. They let him do this because he was a ruler in his territory. And if you know anything about the Herodian family, you know that this was not abnormal in their particular family. But the conviction of his message had power before Herod. Here is a man... John the Baptist, who has no standing, he has no wealth, he has no political influence, he is dressed in camel's hair, eating wild locusts, crying out to the people to repent before God. But his message of conviction, calling not only the lowest of the low, but the highest of the high to repentance, has power even to affect Herod himself. But perhaps the most power here is the power of the character of his life. Now, if John the Baptist was also an immoral man and it showed that he was just uh, living a life of lasciviousness or whatever it is that he's doing and he's calling other people to repent, nobody would have listened, right? But here... By God's grace, he is living a holy and righteous life. Verse 20 says, for Herod feared John. Notice this, here's Herod, fearing this guy, this nobody. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Now, of course, we get to Matthew, it also says that Herod feared the people. In other words, he didn't want to put Herod, uh, John the Baptist to death because he feared what the people might do in rebellion. But here is the power from God for the prophet John, boldness in his office, conviction in his message, and the character of his life. I have to say, preachers today don't have the powers that Jesus displayed in healing people and in doing all those amazing and powerful things, walking on water, stilling storms, the list goes on. But there is power in the message of the word of God. And we boldly proclaim it, not caring who hears it. Now in our history, I've heard a lot of stories about leaders and presidents. 
My mother was a history buff. I found in a drawer, in fact, a history paper that she wrote in 1956 this week. I didn't even know she, she had written this. I, I don't remember ever reading it before. I don't remember how I got it. But here was a history buff. And I remember one thing my mother would say about some of the past presidents. She would tell me her opinion sometimes about some of the past leaders. And I remember how she would say her opinion of LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was he was a crook. And of course, she lived through the times of Nixon, and we heard all the things about Nixon. I remember in my younger days, of course, the stories of corruption and the stories about what might have happened to people who exposed corruption in the times of LBJ or Nixon or Clinton or Trump or Biden or whoever the president might be. What happens when people call out the immorality, call out the sins and the consequences of sin? How is it that a man of God can have the boldness, even if he has no power or influence, to stand up to a ruler? What's this? The office of a righteous man calls all people everywhere to repentance. It doesn't matter who you are. If you stand before a holy God, it doesn't matter whether you've had no wealth or influence or you've had all the wealth and influence that a man can have. God will still judge you the same way. Are you a sinner without hope? Yes. But are you a sinner without hope who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin and turning to him. You see, John was not calling out Herod just to tell him how awful he was, although he could have done that. John, like everyone that he encountered, was calling them to a time of repentance. And he was calling, in this case, Herod Antipas to stop this relationship with this particular woman because it was not lawful for him to have her. And for that reason, Herod Antipas threw him in prison, and Herodias wanted him dead. But of course, the power of God is displayed here in this decadence of mankind. Here's the rest of the story. First of all, I think it's important that you get a little bit of a background of the Herodian family. If you know anything about the Herodian family, you know that not only Herod the Great, but his father also, they wanted power. They were not full-blooded Jewish individuals. They were Idumeans, which means they were descendants of Esau. But they wanted to, the, the people in, in the area of Palestine, Israel, and so forth, they wanted them to see them as Jewish leaders, following the laws and so forth. In fact, Herod the Great, you know, had a great fascination with the temple. And he desired to rebuild the temple. And it, this rebuilding was so luxurious for the temple. It took place and, and continued for decades after his death. But if you know anything about this patriarch, here's a reminder of the patriarch of the family, Herod the Great. He was the guy, when he found out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and the rumor was that it might be in fulfillment of Scripture to be a king, that is, someone who might be a rival to his throne, he decided to kill all the children, all the male children, in that region, ages two and under. In fact, every rival to the throne he put to death. He had his own wife at one point put to death. Well, one of them. He had many wives, some of them at the same time. 
He also, when they found out, when the two sons that he had by the one wife found out, that is, uh, that, that he had had his wife killed, their mother, then he killed them. He had them executed in 7 BC. So here it was. He was constantly on the lookout for those who might take power and influence away from him, and he cruelly would kill them. This is Herod the Great. When he died, his will was contested. He had gone back and forth over who would rule after him because partly he was killing off some of the, the, the participants. And, and on other ways, he didn't trust some of the others of his sons from various wives and so forth. So they, they contested his will in Rome and they had this, this tetrarchy system set up where different regions would be ruled by different people. And power was their god. But you know, it's not just the patriarch that was a mess. There was a real wreck in their genogram. You know what a genogram is? It's one of those little displays that gives all the details of a family genealogy. And so you have all these little boxes and squares and diagrams and all that kind of stuff that go together and you find out who's married to who. Well, in their genogram, they had nieces married by uncles, and they had great uncles marrying other nieces. They had sisters-in-law uh, marrying each other, and, and it was a, just a huge mess. There's such a wreck in there, the depravity contained in their immorality is just great. And then it comes down to it, person by person, you can see what their heart was like. You could see what Herod the Great's heart was like. He wanted power more than anything else and influence. But here you see revenge in the heart of Herodias. Verse 19 says Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. The idea for this grudge is a continued sense of this verb. It's something that started when John the Baptist called them out and continued. She was looking for the opportunity to have him killed. She continued to hold this grudge against him and she found the right opportunity didn't she you see it's not only on display in the Herodian family as the decadence of mankind it's also on display in the Herodian court they had a birthday party my wife had a birthday the other week for whatever reason she was working and other things were going on we didn't have much of a celebration Sometimes we have cake, sometimes we do other things, sometimes we give wonderful presents, we might do those things, but here for the birthday of this kind of king, it was an opulent affair. He gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. Notice these are all men at his birthday party. In fact, the word for military commanders is the word chiliarch, which means commander of a thousand men. These are influential people. These are the court people of the day in Galilee where Herod was ruling. They were the important men. And you know what these banquets would be like? Alcohol would be flowing. Food would be served to the point of excess. And there would be terrible things going on in these parties. Herodias, sensing the situation, knowing that the alcohol would soften up Herod Antipas, particularly on this issue of John the Baptist. She wanted him dead for whatever reason Herod Antipas was protecting him, in a sense. She decided on a great plan, at least in her eyes. She was going to allow her daughter 
to dance for him. Now it sounds innocent enough if you just put it that way. There are many girls in our community, I'm sure, who take dance lessons and do all kinds of different things. There's good and bad about some of those things. But here is the circumstances. This is a drunken party for the king. This is his stepdaughter because she is the daughter of his brother, Philip, and Herodias. The word that's used for girl in these passages indicates that she is not yet of marriageable age, which means she's about 11 or 12 years old. She is coming to dance. And of course, dance in this situation means to dance in a lascivious fashion. Ordinarily, those who were hired to dance would have been the prostitutes and the court, uh, the, the, the the women in the court that were hired for these purposes. Herodias wants her daughter to do this. And the sad part is, she does it, and it pleases the king. You know what this means, pleases the king. Terrible, awful situation. And then he gives her this lavish offer in his drunken stupor, the same kind of offer that the king gave in Esther's day to Esther. I will give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. And of course, she goes back. She's 11, 12 years old. What am I going to ask for? You know, today we would think, of course, 11, 12-year-old girl, what are they going to ask for? Money? They're going to ask for stuff? They're going to ask for, you know, horses in that day? Who knows what they're going to ask for? And her mother tells her, ask him to give you the head of John the Baptist. And she does. Not only that, she kind of makes it even a little more interesting, bring it on a platter. And they do. This is mankind. This is what we're like unchecked. Lest we think how awful those people are, in our hearts left unchecked, we would be the same. From Nebuchadnezzar's hot anger to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not bowing down to his gods, to Kim Jong-un's brutal persecution of Christianity, to Castro's regime in Cuba, which has left that country just on the footsteps or doorstep of America, even to a low place to this day, to the modern-day Venezuela. God's power and Christ's gift of life, even in the midst of such depravity, cannot be quashed. You see, the story here is a reminder of the depravity of man and the depravity of men who are given power, influence, and money without a change of heart. Yet at the same time, it's in the midst of the greater story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The main story is that Jesus and the gospel marches on. But it's also a story that has us to reflect upon our own morality. Think about this. These guys had a sense of morality. The morality for Herodias was this. The queen here wanted justice. She thought it would be just to do away with somebody calling out publicly their sin. Does that sound like any leader today? And then there's the conscience of the king. This is perhaps the most interesting thing. 
First of all, he was compromising between his conscience, which knew it would be wrong to kill and execute John the Baptist, but on the other hand, he knew his wife was out to get vengeance, and she had some power and influence on those around her, so the compromise was this, to protect John the Baptist. So there was some sense of conscience for him, on the one hand, to hate the message of John the Baptist, but to protect his life. But his conscience was cornered, wasn't it, in the story? Now he's promised to give his stepdaughter up to half the kingdom. She's asked for the head of John the Baptist. What is he going to do? Verse 26 says, The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He had a moral code, didn't he? He was cornered, in one sense, into sobering sorrow. He was sorry for the situation he was in. But you know, that's the, that's the thing about sorrow, isn't it? Worldly sorrow might produce grief, but it does not produce repentance. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces repentance. But for this man, there was no repentance. He was sorry because he knew he was going to be choosing between the worst of two evils, either breaking his word or putting an innocent man to death, a holy and righteous man that he feared because of this holiness and righteousness, which he was not. And yet in his moral code, it was more important that he kept his word in the face of the nobles around him than that he spared the life of John the Baptist. You see, in his conscience, he was a man of his word, wasn't he? You know, from mob bosses to atheistic philanthropists, from respected leaders to downright horrible criminals, how many times have you heard somebody say, I'm a man of my word? Does God want us to just be a man of our word with our own sense of morality? And yet, by God's grace, this man became tortured by his sin. That's why when he saw the miracles of Jesus, he said to himself, in fact, the word is emphatic, it's because I, I beheaded John. This is John raised from the dead. It's in fear of judgment. And you would think that this fear in his conscience would change him to repentance and bring him to the feet of the cross. But no. Your conscience can't do this. In fact, we find out later that he had a seared conscience because when Jesus is dragged before this Herod, when he is facing the week of trial and tribulation, his week of suffering, the Passion Week, and he's given by Pilate to Herod, then what does Herod do? He hears what Jesus has to say, and then he begins to ridicule him around all his military officers. He is seared in his unrepentance, that conscience of his Sometimes we think if we just get somebody to understand how bad they are, they're bound to come to Christ. But no, it takes a supernatural miracle of being born again, the spirit causing that conscience to become unseared, that sinfulness to be on display in such a way that you feel not only sorry for what you've done, 
but sorry for what you've done to hate the sin so much that you repent from it, you stop the sin, you trust in Christ for forgiveness, and then your life changes because your desire now is to follow Christ. You see, the other sad thing about this morality of mankind is that it turned even good things into wicked things. After all, think of poor Salome, the daughter of Herodias, someone who would later marry another uncle who was also her great-uncle because of the genealogical history of her family, someone who would then marry another relative with some of the same names as some of the others that have come by, and it's all mixed up and confusing. It would have been a good thing for her to listen to her mother in most circumstances and obey her, but now it is not. How wicked to ask for the execution of a righteous man. It would have been a good thing for the officers in the prison to follow the orders of their leader in most circumstances, as soldiers should do. But to behead and be involved in the execution of John the Baptist, a man that Jesus said was the most important figure historically that had come to this point. You see, the obedience of the people, morality was turned into immorality. And today, isn't it true? Everybody seems to have their own rules to live by, don't they? They're not God's rules. We have a moral code, and we say, if you don't follow this moral code, look how awful you are. Maybe we should cancel you, or maybe we should not listen to you, or you should be fired because you don't have the right moral code. But such morality and such seared consciences can neither guard nor save man from the consequences or wages of sin. So, what can we conclude from this tale of depravity? Well, first of all, more power, wealth, and influence for a sinful man creates more opportunities for evil, doesn't it? Not less. How much we should pray for those that go off into the halls of power in our American capital. They will do much worse things than they did at home unless their heart is changed. Secondly, a mere conscious issue will not save anyone. It takes the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit to change a heart in other words, we cannot make somebody feel bad enough that they're going to come to Christ. It takes not only someone feeling bad enough, but the work of the Holy Spirit to change their heart so that they will have godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And finally, even the cruelest, most ruthless people in the world cannot stop the gospel. Herod the Great tried. He killed all kinds of babies. Herod Antipas tried even killing John the Baptist. And let me tell you, every wicked man on the face of the earth attempts at some point to stamp out the news of the gospel that we are terrible sinners in need of God's mercy. That judgment is coming to all sinners regardless of status. And that in the end, it's only by the grace of God that we come to faith in him. Where are you? Do you have a tortured conscience? But is it seared? Are you someone who has your own moral code, but it's the wrong one? Are you someone who will say, I will keep my word, and yet you do all kinds of wickedness? In addition, by God's grace, unless you too repent, you will end like Herod Antipas, 
and like his family, the terrible Herodians, read about them in your scriptures. Let's pray. Father, as we come, as we come to your table, we recognize the wickedness of man, the horrible judgment to be placed on Jesus on the cross for those sinners like me, like us sitting here, that if you were to give us grace, it would, because, it would be because your son suffered on our behalf. We thank you that nothing can stop the gospel, even cruel and ruthless and great rulers. Father, even us, who sometimes have gone so far astray, we wonder, can we possibly come back? Lord, remind us of your grace. Remind us that nothing can stop the gospel or the church of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.